You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. We are continuing with our virtual interviews as we all shelter in place, and I hope you all are staying safe and healthy. This episode features Felix Chevalier. Felix is an attorney and founder of the Chevalier Law Firm, as well as a co-founder and managing director of Urban Capital Network. After graduating from SUNY New Paltz, Felix had his sights set on matriculating directly to law school. He cast a wide net and applied to 22 different schools. Unfortunately, he was shut out of each and every one. But he didn't give up. During the next admission cycle, he applied to eight more schools and eventually settled on St. John's University School of Law. Now, over 20 years into his legal career, Felix advises and represents Fortune 500 companies across a number of industries. And he's facilitated a number of partnerships between the private sector and government agencies. But Felix has not stopped at just the law. It's no secret that we live in a world where only the very wealthy and well-connected have access to premium investment opportunities. This has created massive wealth for a very small portion of the population. But Felix and his partners at Urban Capital Network are looking to close that wealth gap. UCN serves as a catalyst for individuals to have access to these life-changing investment opportunities, no matter their race, gender, social standing, or economic status. In its initial syndicated investment, UCN raised $1.4 million to invest in Mercury Fund's fourth early-stage venture capital fund. And I'll let him tell you how they did it. Please enjoy. Felix, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thanks so much for agreeing to do this. And you are going to be talking about a topic that I am incredibly passionate about, and that is wealth generation within communities where that's not always possible. I'm already jumping ahead, um, but that just shows you how, how passionate I am about this topic. So, But in any case, let's jump into it. Tell us, who is Felix Chevalier? I guess I'll start from the beginning. Uh, again, Felix Chevalier. I was uh, born and raised in the Bronx. Uh, went to school there from high school, uh, well, up to high school. Uh, then I went to the State University of New York College at New Paltz, which is about two hours north of New York City. Uh, and after graduating law school, I went to work for a private company for about a year. And then I went to uh, St. John's University School of Law in Queens, New York. Uh, so that's that's the Short version of the law school, uh, my parents are immigrants. They both immigrated from the Caribbean. Uh, my father was born in Haiti, raised in Cuba. That's how I get the French last name, Chevalier. And my mother was born and raised in Cuba. That's how I get the Latin first name. So growing up, uh, uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in the Bronx, South Bronx specifically. Uh, a lot of interesting stories growing up in the South Bronx, as you can probably imagine. Uh, the South Bronx is still dealing with a lot of the challenges that uh, today that it was dealing with, you know, when I grew up there, uh, you know, in the midst of this uh, COVID pandemic, uh, the Bronx is just being decimated uh, with this pandemic. And so uh, it, it just highlights more of the issues that uh, uh, the Bronx is particularly facing in, in, the, in the midst of this pandemic. So for first of all, that's an interesting combination. Haitian, Cuban, of Haitian Cuban descent. Even the name itself is is um, awesome, Felix Chevalier. Um, but tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what led you to uh, 
this idea of like, I want to go to law school? Sure. So um, there's really two parts to that story. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, my mother uh, is a nurse. Uh, she, her profession. And so she basically instilled that idea in me as, as a young kid. Uh, I went to Dewey Clinton High School. And Dewey Clinton High School, which is a northern section of the Bronx, had a health careers program. When I got to the school, uh, the program didn't start until the sophomore year. Uh, for some reason, I was put into the program late, walked into this classroom. These kids were way ahead. These were also students I'd never seen before. It was like they had their own universe, their own language. And that's when I realized, mm, this is not really what I want to do. Um, what am I good at? Uh, and I decided, you know what? The legal profession is the way I need to go. Uh, and I made that decision in, in one day because I knew I could not go home and tell my folks that uh, I was no longer going to be a uh, surgeon without having a, a substitute plan in place. And so that's that's part one. But what cemented it for me was when uh, this was either I think it was my last it was my last year of high school, my first year of college. I was doing an internship at the Bronxboro President's Office. Uh, Fernanda Ferrer was the Bronxboro president at the time, and there were 50 students or interns from across uh, the Bronx. And we were given an assignment to uh, come up with different ways we can enhance the Bronx. So I came up with this idea that I thought was ingenious at the time. Uh, my proposal was called uh, Housing and Employment for the Homeless. The reason I came up with this program was because the Bronx was dealing with two major issues. One, you had a tremendous amount of abandoned buildings. I used to play in abandoned mm -hmm. buildings when I was a kid. I thought it was fun, uh, but I didn't know any different. Uh, so one, uh, one was how do we address all these abandoned buildings in the Bronx? And of course, uh, we had major health issues in the Bronx like we're seeing today in the midst of this pandemic. And the idea was to train homeless people uh, various trades uh, specifically geared towards renovating abandoned buildings. So this way they can learn a trade. They can live in the buildings if they, if, if, if possible, but it would be a mixed-use environment. When I say mixed-use, really uh, not just homeless people, because if it was homeless people, it would not be sustainable. And so um, I remember the deputy borough president, her name is Genevieve Brooks, uh, because uh, I was basically told that great proposal, but we couldn't fund it. I was really young, naive. I basically told them uh, how I felt about not funding the project uh, because I thought, look, this is such an incredible need that we have. How can you not fund something like this? And so uh, they had me visit with Ms. Brooks. Uh, <laughs> when I met with her, she was a very no-nonsense lady, uh, but she was the right person for me to talk to because she basically let me know that uh, one, there was no budget for it because uh, there were so many other things uh, that they had to take into account. And she also shared with me that politics played a role in it. And she was the first person to give me a real answer to why uh, this program was not going to be uh, supported. And so what I realized then was that politics plays such a big role in how things got uh, accomplished or did not get accomplished. And I knew having a law degree would help me advance whatever it is I may want to do on a societal level. And so that really was uh, almost like the jet fuel for me to really aggressively pursue a legal career. So, you know, when you hear these stories of some of someone growing up in a community like the Bronx and recognizing some of the disparities that are impacting such a community 
And then thinking about law school, oftentimes their focus area within law is politics or um, some type of social activism or civil rights attorney or something like that. Did you have an idea of which direction you wanted to go in uh, legally? I did not. I did not know what idea, uh, which way I wanted to go. I just knew that policy, policy measures impacted people's lives. And I knew that being a lawyer could be helpful in some form or fashion and shaping those policies, specifically how we'll go about doing it. I, I didn't know. I was, I was too young. I just, knew, I just knew from a broader perspective, that was the lane that will let me figure out the rest once I got there. Got it. So did you go straight through, like graduate from undergrad? Yes. Straight to law school? Yes. Um, actually, no, 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 actually, no. So when I was a junior, I'm sorry, when I was a senior at uh, the State University of New York College at New Paltz, I, um, in between semesters, I did an abroad exchange program to Cuba. Uh, that's a whole other long story. Uh, right after that, I did an externship program working at the New York State Legislature in Albany, New York. Uh, at the time, I was working for State Senator David Patterson, uh, who obviously later became governor of New York. Uh, I was very uh, uh, active as a student. I was uh, part of the association. In fact, I was vice president of the association. I was part of the United States Student Association, very active on campus, B-plus student. Uh, so I, I was doing uh, uh, decently uh, uh, academically, applied to 22 law schools. 22? 22 law schools. Wow. And um, figured uh, getting into law school uh, should not be a problem because I, I, I did I did okay. Well, uh, graduation day, I had, uh, by graduation day, I was already rejected by 20 of the 22 law schools. The two pending letters were from Hofstra Law School and uh, Suffolk Law School out of uh, Massachusetts. And I got rejected by both of those schools as well. So then I realized I am not going to law school. I I uh, do not have a job because I didn't even consider a plan B and I'll be living at my mother's place because I didn't have someplace else to go because I wasn't going to law school. So I did not go to law school immediately after undergrad. I went to work for a private based company, uh, actually in Brooklyn. Uh, that, that's another long story. But um, I worked there for one year, applied to eight schools, got accepted to two of them. St. John's was one. And then I went to St. John's Law School. So let's unpack that like a little bit as somebody who's been through the law school application process um, and it's <laughs> between the LSAT and actually completing the applications is, is pretty grueling. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about your profile from undergrad involved, gr- good grades, you know, all the things that they look for <laughs> when you're applying to law school. What did that do to you? I mean, did you have the confidence when you went into applying to 22 to say a few of these are going to work out, right? I'm going to get in somewhere. Or did you feel like from the beginning it was a shot in the dark? No, I was very confident, so confident I didn't have a plan B. Mm -hmm. So you come through that, get the 22 rejections. What made you or what gave you the drive to say, all right, I'm going to take this time off, but I'm going to reapply or apply to eight different schools? So as far as I was concerned, um, uh, one, I didn't take time off. I immediately got a job. 
Mm-hmm. I reached out to one of my frat brothers who uh, was a vice president of a company, gave me a job. I didn't even have a suit to wear at the interview, so I actually used his suit. Here's a quick funny story. Uh, you interviewed uh, Gordon Jackson. Yes, we love Gordon. <laughs> so, so Gordon was my uh, first roommate in college. That's how we met. Roommates in college. And um, uh, we, we actually line brothers the whole nine. So we know each other very, very well. And um, <laughs> it just so happened that Gordon applied for a job at the same place a week before I went to that interview. Well, when I get to the interview, uh, the guy who interviewed me, sits down, he goes, oh, I see you're wearing Jack Brown suit. Well, Jack Brown is the friend who got me the interview. But Gordon wore the exact same suit oh, wow. before. <laughs> oh this is not this is not a um uh you know simple navy blue suit. No, it was a it was an olive green suit that had these very light uh burgundy and tan uh patterns to it. So it was a very distinguishable suit. And so I start my interview with the interviewer knowing that I'm wearing the same suit somebody wore there last week. Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about the fact that both of you wore an olive green suit, period, <laughs> to an interview. But I guess, hey, if that's what you have access to, you, you got to make it work. And it worked we still, out. We still joke about it to this day. So, okay. So you get get this job um, with the repeat, repeat borrowed suit. Plot of these eight, get into St. John's. Now, I remember, and I've spoken about this on the show before with other people who've gone to law school, but I remember like my first week at law school and, you know, you look to the left and you look to the right of you and you talk to your classmates and it's like you go from being the standout everywhere to like everybody's a standout, right? When you get to law school, you have those few who kind of fell into it, but for the most part, people are very driven. Uh, They have an idea of what they want to do with their career and it's highly competitive. So when you got into that environment, did you feel like this is where I'm supposed to be? I measure up, I got this, or was it something different? So I have, um, I've always been extremely self-confident. So that has been um, my saving grace. Uh, But you can be self-confident and also be self-aware when you're out of your element. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I distinctly remember my first week of law school. Uh, St. John's is tier one uh, law school in the United States. Uh, We had a hundred and 25 people in my section. Uh, so for those who uh, have not not familiar with how law schools work, you have um, your first year class, we refer to them as 1Ls, and you might have 300 students and you're broken them into, into different uh, groups. So I was in, in one of the three groups and, I, and our one group had 125 students in it. And um, I was one of three black men out of this 125 students. And I distinctly remember when in a class called Scopes and Methods, and our professor asked or made the comment that actually that you made a few moments ago, instead of, you know how you said, I look to my left and look to my right. Well, the professor told us to look to our left and to look to our right and share with us, uh, when you look to your left and you look to your right, one of you will not be here by the end of the year. Uh, and if you're thinking about working while you're in law school, you might as well leave now. Now, mind you, I'm, I'm there sitting in this room realizing what, First of all, I'm less than 1% of the room, or less than, certainly less than 3% of the room. And on top of that, I'm literally contemplating how am I going to pay for this, right? right. So I'm going to have to work too. And so um, I'm, I'm mindful of it. Mind you, I'm going to school with kids who um, come from affluent families. Uh, it was pretty obvious to me. So for example, one of my classmates 
uh, her grandfather, the, the section of the, uh, the hall that we were in was named after her grandfather. Um, uh, Charlie Wangle's son, Steve, Steve was in my class. Uh, in New York City, there are uh, two popular uh, Barbie courses. I don't know if that's still the case today, uh, but you have Barbary and then you had another one called Peeper. Yes. We're still around. Well, Peeper's son was in my class, Troy Peeper, right? So it just gives you an example of uh, the kind of things that we were wrestling with. And, I, and I'll share one more, um, probably the best example I can give of how I, I realized I was in a completely different universe. We were in property class one day and uh, we were talking about the concept. Of, we were talking about um, real estate and we started talking about equity and it was, I had a twilight zone moment because I realized we were talking about equity in a way that I was not familiar. Mm -hmm. I understood equity in terms of fairness. They were talking about equity in terms of finances and assets. And I realized that I didn't understand. I, I realized that I was unaware of how they were using it. I just knew that um, it was just another example of how these were um, concepts that came very quickly and naturally to my classmates because they grew up in houses. Right. Grew up in a house. Right. I didn't, I wasn't exposed to people who grew up in houses until I went to college. So it's, 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 uh, it's a part of uh, a lack of exposure and, uh, and other things that make you quickly realize, oh, you're, you're in a new Ella, not necessarily out of yours, but in a new Ella. Yeah. And I think, um, for me, I, I remember having a distinct, a distinct experience like that in, in law school. Now, because of where I went to undergrad, I'd been around people with ton of money legacy. So I had that name on the building experience at Penn, right? So undergrad, I knew I had worked in corporate America. I took a couple of years off. Um, but I think that the wake up call for me is, so I went to law school later than you, but I was in law school during uh, the great recession. So we started our 3L year uh, 2008, you know, everything, the bubble was bursting. People were losing their offers. Stock market was doing crazy things. But I distinctly remember in my section and we were going to class. We were all in waiting for a class to start and people were watching the, the reports online, right? On laptops of what was going on in the stock market. And my friends who now I've known for a couple of years were stepping out of the room to call their brokers to make moves. And that's when I realized like, we're all 27, 26, 27. And these people have whole stock portfolios. And at that point, I thought I was doing something because I had had a corporate job and dumped some 401k money into my 401k, right? As a young um, employee. But I realized like, it was it was that self-awareness that you you were just talking about. I knew that I had the, the acumen to be there. I knew I had the the talent to figure it out. But just realizing that in some ways, particularly as it relates to uh, fiscal acumen, I was still behind the eight ball. Oh, for sure. For sure. So I, I relate to you uh, in that way, for sure. So and I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people who look like us, black and brown folks, go to law school um, with not all, but a lot with the with the the plan of like, oh, I'm going to a white shoe law firm. I'm about to get to this money to to kind of encourage the closing of that gap. But as you started going through the process, what crystallized for you in terms of the practice area or the path that you wanted to take as an attorney? 
So it's interesting how you talk about the the, the white shoe walking uh, uh, focus. That that is certainly uh, focus that a lot of uh, people have when they're in law school. And for those of, uh, in your audience who may not be aware of what that means, it, this is typically the, the big law firms that pay the top dollar, right? Mm-hmm. So um, one of uh, when I when I, um, I so one part of the story I, I, I didn't get to mention was that. Um, when I applied to St. John's Law School, one of, uh, actually, undergraduate fraternity brother of mine uh, was at St. John's. And he was literally the poster child for the school. When I say the poster child, I mean, like, he was on the brochure. Mm. So they loved this guy. And uh, he was helpful into getting me into St. John's Law School. And he was one of the people who got one of those great, cushy jobs, right? And uh, at the time, top dollar at a major New York law firm, this is like Crevasse, and Moore, and all those big firms, was $96,000. And of course, during the summertime, they get wine and dine, the whole nine yards. Right. Once they get out and are working there full time, they're working 80 hours a week, you know, leaving extra clothes at the office, showering at the office so they can get back and do more hours. And I was like, that's insane. And I looked at it from a very practical perspective. My perspective was, look, if you're going to put in 40, if you're going to put in 80 hours and you're paying $96,000 a year, if you work 40 hours a week, you're making half that salary, right? 40, whatever, some thousand dollars, right? $45,000, whatever it is. So, so to me, um, that was just not appealing to me. I wanted to make the big money, but I didn't want to make it that way. And so, um, I, I was, I still, but I knew, I still was not very clear on which particular path I wanted to take, but I knew that was the path I didn't want to take. Uh, I had the opportunity in my second, the summer between my 2L and 3L year, I had an incredible opportunity uh, and took advantage of it to work uh, at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. Great experience, got uh, offered a job at the end of the summer, but then realized, Criminal law is just not for me. That made it very, very clear to me that, look, it was a great experience, but uh, I don't want to do anything related to criminal law. Mm-hmm. So then that's when I realized I know I certainly want to do stuff more in the business, uh, in the business world. Got it. So what did that look like, the business world for you coming out of law school? Yeah. So uh, after law school, uh, I took the New York, New Jersey bar exam. Passed both of those, uh, but immediately afterwards moved to Texas for uh, an opportunity. And while um, those were great, I, I, you know, had those experiences and then and then moved on to the next deal. Uh, worked at a uh, mid-sized law firm uh, doing commercial litigation. Uh, again, great experience. I was good at it, but I didn't enjoy it. And while I was working at this law firm, I was helping a lot of my friends who were starting their businesses. I was basically moonlighting and uh, because they couldn't afford the rates that this mid-sized firm would charge. So I couldn't charge them those rates. But I also did not have the experience to help them with the kind of work that they needed. And so they understood I was practicing on them, uh, but they got to get the work done for free. So when I decided I wanted to start my own practice, uh, at that point, I already had a developed a knack for business. Uh, I knew what they needed. I knew the issues. And so when I left uh, the, uh, what I'm going to call the corporate legal world and started my own private law practice, I had a, a, a natural group of customers already in place. And those were primarily uh, small businesses. 
Right. So as someone who, as we talked a little bit off, off the air, has been in that space and understands how much of a grind it is to sustain, not only just launch, but to sustain that, um, how, how long, let's, I'm going to put this into to two questions. How long were you in solo practice, right? I don't know if it's something that you continue to do or um, so how long have you been in solo practice, but, but also primarily, even though you had the, the clientele to start, how long did it take you to get to the point where you were like, this is doable. I can support myself long-term doing this. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, June 16th, 2005 is when I filed for my law practice. I still practice law to this very, mm-hmm. very day. So I've sustained it for 15, uh, next month will be 15 years. And, um, I honestly never thought that it would not work because my mentality is I'm going to make it work one way or another. So I mm-hmm. just think that it won't work. Um, I, if, from my perspective, I just figure it out. Right. I'm very much like, I'll jump and I'll just build my wings along the way. Pretty much my mentality. And so, um, yeah, I've I been consistently operating for 15 years. Uh, my um, my business took a major uh, shift, if you will. And I'll give you some context for this. So when, uh, right before I was leaving uh, to start my practice, some friends of mine and I started a political action committee. And this is right around 2004, when uh, right after the uh, President George Bush, uh, John Kerry presidential debate. And um, at the time, there was a uh, um, there was a um, an ad called the Swift Boat ad. The Swift Boat ad was designed to attack John Kerry's uh, military career. And a lot of people give that ad credit for knocking him out of the presidential race. And so at the time, we were very surprised that a small group of people were able to pull some money together, uh, put together an ad, and theoretically able to knock out one of the uh, Democratic uh, presidential nominees, or the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party. And so uh, we had an option. We could have complained about it, or we could do something about it. And so we decided to start a political action committee. as a result of that, and they're building quite a bit of political relationships with elected officials because we would pool our money together, give money to elected officials who we thought would advance um, what we thought would be uh, good policies. And uh, once you give money to one elected official, others come, started in the local level, then they went to state, even went to national, and then even uh, supporting candidates who were even outside of the state of Texas. So to kind of make a long story short, I uh, uh, there was a mayoral campaign coming up and uh, I, w- I got behind one of the candidates and I went all in with this guy. Like uh, I literally gave him my time, talent and my treasure because I truly believed in him and uh, he lost. So uh, it was devastating for me uh, because I put in a lot of time, effort uh, to him winning. But that, interestingly enough, that loss is what ended up really propelling my business because the person who won ended up pulling me on her transition team. Uh, And the transition team is essentially the people who uh, assess uh, what's going on in the city. Uh, They'll have different uh, aspects of uh, the administration that they'll focus on and then give their recommendations and help uh, the ushering in of the new administration. Well, I was working with the small business community 
uh, it was really the small business community and the large and major corporations. And so uh, as a result of that, everyone um, knew that I knew this particular space, particularly related to uh, working with uh, uh, small business initiatives and things of that nature. And I started just getting referrals left and right uh, to represent major corporations who are looking to do business with the city of Houston. And my transactional practice, literally, which was 100% transactional work, went to 85% government affairs work overnight. Wow. So let's back up a little bit to you getting this opportunity to be a part of the transition team. So you you given 110 to the candidate who lost. Tell me specifically how you ended up working with the winner of that of that election. Yeah. So 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 I was purposely I, I purposely glossed over that because there's there's a lot of details to it. But now that you're asking, mm-hmm. uh, I'll tell you how that played out. So um, the two candidates were not very different, right? Um, it's just that the candidate I was supporting, I just really believed in him which is why I put in so much effort into this campaign. A few weeks prior to, um, what, two critical pieces. Uh, A few weeks prior to the election day, and this is 07, I think, 08, maybe 09. A few weeks before, uh, I had a conversation with one of the other candidates' consultants. We were friends. And she says, we say to each other, hey, if my guy wins, you know, you're covered, and, and vice versa, right? And she was actually at, at an event we were hosting for our guy. And um, the the other important part was that the candidate I was supporting fired his chief finance person, and she ended up going to work for the other candidate who ultimately won. Okay, mm. the first fundraiser that my my guy had, um, my friends and I hosted for him, and it was wildly successful. We raised like. Thirty, forty thousand dollars, and for young professionals, that was very significant. It like the, it looked like the United Nations at this event. Very nice hotel. It went very, very well. And so, fast forward election night, my guy loses. I am depressed, right? I'm just like, just I'm like dejected. But I knew that I, I needed to go congratulate my friend who she batted a thousand that night. She actually uh, not only did her mayoral candidate win, but she represented some other people, and they all won. Right. She she was like on cloud nine. So I'm leaving this depressed environment and I go to where uh, she is. And it's like the Super Bowl celebration going on in there. Right. Sure. <laughs> and I go in there and I, I, I go to, you know, congratulate her. And then she says to me, oh, great. By the way, you are already on the transition team. Right. What I later learned was that um, they were already evaluating who they can potentially bring in from the other team. And because the lady who ran his finances knew about what I was doing, because I'm in the office, right? But she knew the work that I was putting in. And part of the discussion was, well, if you're going to bring somebody in, you should bring in these folks. I'm saying these folks because it just wasn't me. It was me and, and my friends. Uh, but these, this, this is the group you should bring in because they were able to raise money, they couldn't work, you know, they're young, they're ambitious. And so she saw the work that we put in. I didn't know she was going to get fired. No one knew she was going to end up going working over there. And she ended up um, co-signing for us. Wow. So I think there are a couple of lessons here. Um, And and for particularly for higher achieving people, 
we we give 110 to everything. And when it doesn't quite work out the way we intended, um, the feelings of dejection are normal, obviously. Um, but I think the lesson here is that even a loss can be a win. And the end result may not manifest in the way that we would like, but it doesn't mean that you um, are not going to win in that situation or there's not something set up for you that is a part of your destiny uh, to make that situation worth your while. So it's, it's hard when you're in it. That's just not the way we're wired. But and sometimes it doesn't happen as quickly as it happened for you <laughs> in terms of seeing the positive end result. But I think that's important. And then the other lesson um, that I think is really important is and we've talked about it on the show before is never burning a bridge. Mm hmm. Because you never know who's going to present your next opportunity to you. That's that's my life story. You know, I, I have mentees that I have, and I, I'll tell them, look, just just put in, put in your all. You can have a plan. Your plan may not work the way you want it to work, but you will always benefit in the end. And that has absolutely been my life story. Every time I run into a what I perceive to be a major roadblock uh, by continuing to go. I end up seeing something even better than I envisioned in the first place. Absolutely. So, and speaking of like better than you envisioned, so you have this practice working with small businesses that now flips into a government affairs um, operation. So you had you had the plugs. You had people who were saying he knows this space well. Uh, he he's got his ear to the ground. He knows what's going on. But how did you really position yourself as a small? law firm owner, right? Principal attorney as someone who was capable of representing these really large corporations to the government and being able to do so successfully without having had that track record. So I give you a couple of examples. I represented AT&T. AT&T partnered with a small company to go after the city's wireless contract, multi, multi-million dollar contract, like 13, 14 million dollar contract. And uh, AT&T was having some problems. Now, as you can imagine, AT&T is a Fortune 50 company. Uh, they have access to any law firm uh, in the country. Um, and they can pick up the phone and say, hey, I need you to handle this matter for me. So the person that uh, was partnering with AT&T is the person who I was working with on a transition team, the mayor's transition mm -hmm. uh, assisted by the name of Renee, Renee Logans. And so uh, she says to them, to, the, to AT&T, person you need to hire is Felix Chevalier. The reason you need to hire him is because he works closely with the city legal department. The reason I work closely with the city legal department is because when I was working on the mayor's transition team, we were working on a new policy called uh, Hire Houston First. It was essentially a policy where you would provide Houstonians uh, an advantage, a slight advantage over people who were not Houstonians going after city contracts. So I had people from the city legal department serving on my committee. And I was interfacing with the city attorney the whole time. And this particular procurement was housed in the legal department. And so they needed someone who understood the policy, but also the politics. Mm. And I knew both, which is why I ended up representing AT&T. Um, I mean, I, 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 and, and it just kind of just snowballed from there. I've had people from the city. Uh, you have instances where um, you have instances where. Uh, companies will ask people from the government, hey, I need help. Who are some people that I can go to? Um, and I was one of the names that was recommended to another major company. We all know who the company is. Um, but 
yeah, so I've had the very good fortune of representing a lot of uh, major companies. I mean, United States Gypsum, United Healthcare, Aramark, Southwest Airlines, and, and others. So let me ask you this, because one of the things that we do on this show is we love to get into the tactical and some of the granular elements of things. And I think sometimes where we struggle as entrepreneurs, Black entrepreneurs specifically, is undervaluing ourselves. So we get these big opportunities and we have the buy-in. Then the next question is, you know, well, what is this going to cost us, dear service provider? And and I've had this conversation with, I don't know, countless Black and Brown entrepreneurs where they say, I got this amazing opportunity. I didn't know what to charge. I put a number out there and they jumped on it. Now I'm feeling like I, I, I undercut myself. Um, so now you go from representing small businesses to Fortune 50 companies. How did you learn to, to value the work that you do and, and price it appropriately so that this was really lucrative for you? Yeah, so uh, that was pretty easy. Uh, I found out what other people were charging as my benchmark. That was mm-hmm. That's what I did. So how did you go about getting that information? Because I think another issue we have as a people sometimes we don't ask enough questions and, and pick up the phone and say, hey, I, I need help. Like, so how are you getting those details? Yeah, I would I would literally call people up and be like, look, hey, what do people normally charge for something like this? Mm-hmm. I would get ranges, right? Oh, such and such. Some people would just send me contracts or they would say, hey, mm-hmm. such and such. Yeah, but remember, I'm dealing with people who I know, people mm-hmm. who trust me. Right. People who know that I'm asking because I don't know and I'm trying to get some guidance. And so, um, you know, the old saying says uh, 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 closed mouths don't get fed. And so I'm not bashful about asking. If you tell me no, that doesn't bother me. I've been told no my whole life. So that's that's nothing new for me. Uh, So, yes. So to, to answer your question, I would just ask people. I would get a range. And then I would pick um, something within that range that I thought made sense. Mm-hmm. So you build out this government affairs practice, doing well, sustaining and doing better than sustaining. Um, and most people would be in a sweet, cushy spot right there and be like, I'm good. I'm taken care of. But you then got involved in the investment space and the fund space. So how did that come about? Huh. So mind you, I started off working with small businesses. And of course, access to capital has always been a challenge for mm-hmm. a lot of small businesses. I have applied for my own SBA loan. I was successful in, in obtaining it. But I know the challenges a lot of companies face. And clearly, I'm aware of a lot of the challenges that um, uh, the African-American, Latino, and, and Black and Brown communities uh, face and always trying to figure out what are, what are ways where we can help with this. So... Um, I mentioned to you that when I started my practice, right around that time, I started as a political action committee. So I'm very well aware of all the political issues that we're facing. And additionally, during that time, uh, a friend of mine started a group called Stakes and Stokies. Uh, Now, Stakes and Stokies is um, a professional networking group of uh, African-American men. And it started really informally. It was just eight of us. Uh, We got together at a restaurant where in our late 20s, early 30s. And because we were all friends, everybody's very candid with each other. And we would talk about our successes, but also our failures. What do we need help with, right? We would talk about the big bonus we got or if we got fired or, you know, the new pretty girl in town that somebody got with uh, or when we got dumped, right? So we would talk about all of those things. And um it went really well, so we decided let's do it again. You know, let's invite some more guys, and it grew from just eight people to 
over 1,500 over a decade. And so we do it on a quarterly basis, very formalized now where we operationalize it, essentially. We have a, we have court, we have a speaker that happens every quarter at a hotel. We probably have 60 to 80 guys there. Uh, we've expanded from Houston to D.C., looking to expand it nationally. Um, so I'm giving you this as context because uh, this same group, we realize that we have essentially an expert, uh, a network of experts, right? These guys are lawyers, doctors, students, elected officials, um, and, and it's intentionally intergenerational. So we have guys who are in school uh, and we have uh, the elders in our community who participate as well. We have fathers who bring their sons and we have sons who bring their fathers. Right. So it, it's, it's intentionally that way. And it's really, really um, it's, it's 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 a fun um, um, and a fulfilling uh, gathering of, of these men. And so we've been talking about putting together an investment group for quite some time and uh, just been busy just didn't get around to it. And a friend of mine who, I don't even know if he's ever even been to Stakes and Stogies, uh, reached out to me one day and he says to me, hey, I'm th- thinking about uh, a few things and um, just want to talk to you about it, right? So we sat down, had breakfast. He tells me about it. And one of the things he's talking about is putting together an investment group. So uh, I gave him some help with some other stuff he needed to get some help with. And then he, uh, he and I decided to get together again. And I said to him, look, we're talking about creating an investment group as well. Why don't all of us get together and talk about how we can collaborate and possibly do something jointly? And uh, to make a long story short, uh, that one meeting turned into Urban Capital Network. Nice. So let's talk about what Urban Capital Network is today. Sure. So I'll start with telling you what the problem and situation is, right? So um, most of us, have smartphones and we look at our phones, you'll see uh, apps on there like Airbnb and Uber and Evernote and other apps that we all use on a daily basis. Uh, but we don't normally hear about these great technological advances until we're downloading them on our phones. We right. would all love to have the opportunity to invest in these kind of businesses, but we don't normally uh, have access to them, right? Because what happens is, if a company, you, and you would know this more than most, uh, when you're working with startup companies that are scalable, that can grow exponentially, um, and, and they have a, a really viable product, once they get through the early stages of you know, seed investing and family and friends and things of that nature, uh, they then end up going to the big venture capital firms. Right. The big venture capital firms then turn to pension, pension funds, insurance companies, family offices, and their friends and family. They're not calling us because they don't know us. Right. So that's problem number one. We don't have access. Problem number two is that even if one of your Penn uh, law school friends uh, said to us, hey, here's this deal, invest in it, the typical minimum financial investment threshold is $100,000 or maybe a quarter million dollars. So even if I know about it, I personally do not have $100,000 in cash or able to put at risk even if I did have it in cash. So those are two problems, right? So that's what birthed Urban Capital Network because we realized that with our relationships and with our business acumen, 
we were able to address those two problems. And I explained to you how we go about addressing them. In Houston, the largest or oldest um, uh, venture capital firm is a company called Mercury Fund. Uh, just so happens that I met the managing director, the guy who owns it, started it 18 years ago in, in Mexico City. Wow. Mutual client, uh, met there, and that's how we met. My friend, Heath Butler, who reached out to me, uh, guy who I mentioned we had breakfast and then said, hey, let's talk about potentially uh, partnering, works for Mercury Fund. He's a, what they call a network partner with them. And so we have access to this, to, to, to the oldest venture capital firm in Houston, right? I've known the guys, you know, for 18 years and he actually uh, works with them. They, they heavily rely on him to work with a lot of these major corporations and to work with their portfolio companies. And so we have the access part um, in place. And so uh, we can allow our friends access to these deals. But the other problem is the minimum investment threshold. Right. Most people don't have one hundred thousand dollars to just invest in some companies that may or may not make it. Right. And so what we were able to do is um, create uh, basically legal structures known as special purpose vehicles, uh, which is essentially a corporation or a limited liability company that allows, let's say, 10 of us to put in ten thousand dollars each. And now we can all invest that money into uh, um, one of these businesses that we want to, that we would normally not have access to. And so that's just an example of how we are able to leverage our access to the major venture capital firm and pull or syndicate uh, money from multiple investors so then we can have the, uh, at least the minimum amount of money to invest into these deals that, uh, but for these relationships, we would not have access to. That's incredible. And, you know, we were, we were talking a bit about my work with startups before we started recording. And one of the things that I would find incredibly mind blowing is I would have a, a client who was in one space or deciding to move into another space or start a new, new business. And they call me and say, hey, I got this idea. I'm going to do a seed round or I need to do another round. Can you paper it for me? And people don't know lawyer language. That just means draft contracts, right? Draft the documentation. Can you paper it? I, I need to raise you know, half a million dollars. Okay, no problem. Uh, just let me know, you know, when you start talking to people, when you want me to get involved. And I've had instances where people call me back the next day and said, we got, we have a half a million dollars. And it'd be three or four friends who just said, all right, you know, I'll put up 125 or 150. Yeah. Of course, these people did not look like us <laughs> at all, right? So, um, and, and these are the businesses, to your point, that go on to become valued at billions of dollars. And that initial investment of, you know, 100K turns into millions and millions of dollars for people who had access to the money. But even in the smaller amounts with what, what you're doing, there's a certain level of risk appetite that is required. And culturally, um, many of us have a hard time parting with our hard-earned money, even if it's only 10000 25,000 to put into something that could become an exponent of that. But given most of us come from working class families, many are first generation or, you know, second generation college, uh, we're holding on to everything we have, often helping relatives financially as well. So did you, when you first started to sell this um, in your network, did you meet opposition even at the smaller, much smaller amounts in, in terms of like an entry point into the space? So a couple things I think it's important to share. Um, most of the people we're targeting are professional. Mm -hmm. 
That's that's one. Uh, most of these people are going to be what's known as accredited investors. And for, for your audience, um, uh, an accredited investor is someone who uh, individually makes $200,000 a year and has for the last two years and reasonably expects to be able to, to make that uh, in the future. Or if you're married, $300,000 together, or if you have assets uh, of a million dollars, excluding a house. So if you fit in that category, uh, then uh, you typically, based upon uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission's perspective, uh, you are a, a more sophisticated investor because they feel like you have more disposable income than uh, someone who doesn't meet that definition of an accredited investor. So uh, these are folks, again, who have more disposable income, who might be a little bit more comfortable, uh, but we're also dealing with people who we already know, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I remember I, I, I'm sharing with you that this is a big network that we have access to. And if you have it, great. If you don't have it, that's fine too. You, you may not be ready today, but you may be ready down the road. Or for example, I just got a call, uh, just had a call yesterday where I know uh, two guys who are going to go uh, uh, go into a deal together to come up with $10,000 or $11,000 to invest in the current fund that we're doing now. Right. So there there are different ways to do it because, you know, oftentimes you're right. You know, we, we have a tremendous amount of responsibility on us. Right. We have to provide for ourselves, for our immediate family and maybe extended family. Right. Uh, in addition to other responsibilities that we may have. So we have not had that much pushback uh, because we because the kinds of companies that we are presenting to them are not startups. These are early stage companies. So what do I mean by that? Uh, for Again, for your audience, that I always try to be mindful of people who may not be familiar with this universe. Uh, so a startup is a company that literally is just starting up. It just has an idea, has a concept, uh, but there's no true customers. They're not making money. It's just an idea. And ideas are great, but they're a dime a dozen. It's about execution. Right. And so once a company gets to the point where in its evolution, typically they go into their friends and family saying, hey, I got this idea where you're getting your money, right? And they typically start with their family and their friends. And then after that, after they exhaust their family and friends, they'll then go to what they call angels. And angels are people who are who are open to investing in companies that are still in a startup phase, but you don't know these people. You're just getting to learn to know them. Uh, and then uh, if the company does start showing some kind of promise, uh, just, you know, getting customers some revenue and that they're in a position to scale, in other words, grow exponentially, uh, then uh, they may be ready to present their company to um, uh, a venture capital firms. So think Shark Tank, right? You listen to all the terminology when people are going before uh, uh, the Shark Tank celebrities, they're using language that people don't use on an everyday basis. Um, you know, what's the equity? How much do you want for the equity? What's your valuation? How did you get to that valuation? Uh, what's your MVP, most uh, valued product, uh, you know, like a viable product? You know, they're asking all these questions. These are things you have to know to get to that point. Right. Okay. And so everybody does not have access to companies once they get to that point. They just don't. Because the, again, the venture capital firms are now only going to the pension funds, they're going to insurance companies and their family and friends to get in on this company that now has has a greater probability of succeeding than failing. It can still fail, 
But now the uh, um, it's it's to a degree been de-risked. They're showing some promise to be successful because we all know that the overwhelming majority of businesses fail, right? But these are companies that have shown that they are the they're more than likely than not to succeed. And so uh, the folks who we're talking to see that and uh, realize what the opportunity is and uh, uh, understand the value of investing in these kind of companies uh, at a stage where they are um, poised to grow exponentially. Right. And in keeping in that theme, you know, for those who may not understand what may not understand what it means to invest in a company that is poised for exponential growth, there still is a runway there before you're going to see a, a potential a return on your investment. So when you're talking to, frankly, savvy professionals who probably have a, a better understanding um, of this as well. But what is the timeline that you're thinking about with someone when you say, hey, do you want to go in on this fund? Here's here's the opportunities that we're looking at. What on average, how long could it take for someone to see a return on that? Yeah, yeah, three to five years is what mm-hmm. we're seeing uh, in our deal. So you got to be willing to put up, you know, whatever number is ten thousand, fifty thousand dollars, and not see it for three to five years. Sometimes right. seven years. Absolutely, and and people may hear, um, oh, this company went public, or there was an exit. You know, it was acquired here as well. And we see that, and we see the numbers, right, of the people who. Um, whose names are in the public eye, the CEO or the executive board and what they're cashing out at. And sometimes people don't realize that it, it could be seven, 10 years in the making before they get to that point Absolutely. where they actually have you know, cash or they're actually profitable even on paper. Um, so this, we've been talking a lot about the work that you're doing um, with regard to giving investment opportunities uh, to those who may not otherwise have them, but you're also poised and positioned as well to reinvest or, or put money somewhere else um, with regard to the earnings from the fund. So tell me a little bit about IQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's exactly right, because we realize uh, there are two problems with, for, I'll back up a little bit. So we have uh, folks who want to invest in businesses and grow their wealth, right? Um, or increase their wealth, but don't have access to these promising companies. Um, but on the flip side, you have entrepreneurs who want to uh, grow, the, grow their own businesses, uh, but they often don't have access to capital or they don't even know who to call. Um, you know, like you said earlier, a, a company will call you up and say, hey, paper it up, which is, you know, legal work for, uh, I need the documents to give to these investors. Well, a lot of people in uh, uh, black and brown communities uh, don't have the investors to invest in their businesses, let alone even have the lawyer to paper it up for them. Right. Right. So understanding that 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 challenge, what we did was we created a nonprofit. Uh, it's the Innovation Center for um, uh, Urban Entrepreneurship. And what we're doing is taking a portion of the money that we make from the companies that we invest in and take a portion of that, the profits, and invest it into IQ. IQ, again, stands for uh, Innovation Center for Urban Entrepreneurship. Uh, IQ uh, is set up to have a diversity fund. So that money that we contribute goes into that fund, and that fund would be used to invest into businesses in urban communities. So there, you mentioned the two problems, which is a great segue uh, into getting your thoughts on this. So one of the things that I'm often thinking about is creating general generational wealth, right? And and you're attacking that. 
from two prongs, from the investment prong, but also from the entrepreneurs who are seeking funding to grow into a formidable business. And if you look at the statistics, let's take the the fund the funded side, so the entrepreneur that needs it to be funded. And there's been a lot of talk about this in the news. I've spoken about it on other shows. Um, but we represent such a small number. It was like, I think in 2015, it was 1% black, yeah. black startup founders who were funded. Less than 2%. Sure, not much better. Yes, less than 2%. Um, so given the space that you're in and the work that you're doing with the one-two punch, do you think this wealth gap, we're going to see a significant decrease in our in our generation, in our lifetime? That part, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we will, but I can't control what happens in the uh, macro, but I can control what happens in the micro, right? So I can only focus on my part. Hopefully others will join. And they're, we're not the only ones doing this. There are other people who uh, are working on this effort. Uh, but if we have enough of us working on it, uh, we can at least make a dent. And I'll feel better knowing that I made an effort and, and I'm making a dent. I mean, I know how big that dent may be, but I know I'm making a dent. And, and it's not, and the other thing you talked about, uh, uh, generational wealth, so obviously you can create that with being able to invest in promising businesses and growing um, um, uh, businesses and in, uh, in, in urban centers, uh, but it also helps create jobs because we're more likely than not to hire people who look like us. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the other things is important to, to bring up is that, you know, everybody is looking at technology, you know, these companies that are having these massive exits, but there's something to be said for the mom and pop businesses who may never see more than a quarter of a million dollars a year, a hundred thousand dollars a year for their family, but they are creating jobs in the community and they are creating assets that could be can be passed down. And those should not be discounted because they're not going to grow to be some multi-billion dollar conglomerate. Right. right. That's true. And 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 while I don't know the exact statistics, uh, we're more likely going to have uh, way more mom and pop shops than we're going to have these technological uh, unicorns that uh, come every once in a while. So uh, we, we still have to have our mom and pop shops. Absolutely. So shifting gears, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I gave you one, I think. <laughs> yeah, one. We always ask the question, even though most stories and most journeys, when you talk about... So I'll give you, I'll give you one. Projection letters, that is definitely an extraordinary on an ordinary day moment. Yeah. But tell us about another one if you can. I'll give you, I'll give you another one. So uh, my uh, in my government affairs practice, uh, and, and what's funny is none of this is by design, right? It sounds great, but I know it sounds really good, but this is not by design, right? This kind of this, this stuff kind of evolves on its own. So I mentioned how uh, I believe I mentioned earlier that when I was a college student, I did an exchange program to Cuba, and uh, phenomenal experience. It was like a paradigm shifting experience for me because I heard a million stories from my mother and father about their experiences growing up in Cuba. Of course, we heard all the new, you know, we've been hearing about the dynamics between Cuba and the United States and the embargo for all these years. Uh, but to see it live and direct uh, was a paradigm shift for me. It was an incredible experience. I got the uh, incredible experience. I even saw Fidel Castro give a speech um, uh, in Cuba. This is in 1992, uh, 1993. So um, I share this story with a lot of my friends and even my clients when we were we're just socializing. So um, in in 2014, President Obama announced that Cuba and the United States would want to normalize relations. And I started getting calls from my corporate clients 
about how to get into the Cuban marketplace. Because you got to remember, it's 11 million people. For them, they're looking at this as a completely uh, new territory of clients. It's almost like a new state, right? Right. You know, uh, open a completely new market. And so I um, had enough clients asking me to get uh, into Cuba where I said, you know what? Uh, but I didn't know how, right? I, I, I didn't know how because U.S. companies were not allowed to do business there. I didn't know anybody who was doing business there. Uh, but I knew the mechanics of how to get into a market, right? It's the same thing that I help major corporations do when they're trying to do business in the state of Texas, uh, namely uh, Houston. So I, um, I uh, decided I was going to go to a conference in Cuba uh, and start meeting the people. Now, mind, this is a communist country. Right. Everything, every business, every major industry is run by the Cuban government. And so you're, you're basically navigating um, uh, the, the uh, political uh, structures there. And uh, to kind of make a long story short, I happened to go to lunch one day with a friend of mine who's also a client. We're talking about traveling. I tell him I'm going to go to Cuba. He says, hey, you mind if I go with you because you really want to go? It was an energy conference. He works for an energy company. He joins me at this energy conference. Well, this friend and client uh, works for one of the largest uh, exporters of liquid petroleum gas products in the United States. They literally set the price for LPGs, like propane, isobutane, stuff like that. And um, uh, they decided, you know what? We want to do business in Cuba. So I was successful in navigating the Cuba infrastructure and the U.S. infrastructure to help them get the appropriate licenses to export to Cuba, which is not an easy task because you're still in the midst of an embargo. I uh, have to deal with Department of Commerce, Bureau of Industry and Securities, uh, State Department, OFAC, which is an OFAC stands for Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is a division of Department of Treasury. Then they have to deal with all of the internal um, agencies within the Cuban government in order to get them the proper licensing to uh, get into Cuba. And uh, everything is going really, really well. Uh, we're negotiating. Um, we're visiting refineries, I mean, the whole nine yards. And President Trump uh, makes a speech uh, in Florida to um, uh, some Cubans there. And that speech essentially has such a chilling effect on everything that was going on with Cuba. It killed all of that. Now, mind you, this is, I'm giving you a, it, it, give it to you in a short version, but this is two and a half years of work. Yeah. Back and forth, meeting with people, I'm hosting receptions. I'm speaking at their energy conferences, right? I'm really, really working this, right? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm hosting delegations to Cuba. Uh, the mayor, the city of Houston's mayor, Sylvester Turner, had his first delegation to Cuba, which I was a part of. So things are going really, really well, right? I became this Cuba expert overnight. And um, uh, President Trump gives his speech, kills everything, right? It just kills it, right? This is uh, theoretically two and a half years down the drain because nothing is happening, right? This company that has the license from the U.S. government to do business with Cuba said, pause. So um, uh, needless to say, I was not a happy camper when this happened, uh, but I knew I could not let this opportunity go to waste, right? Like I I was like, I got to figure something out. And, And it dawned upon me that I developed so many relationships by going back and forth to Cuba that um, 
those relationships included diplomats from all over the world, particularly Latin American and Caribbean. Because when I would go speak at these conferences in Cuba, uh, I'm dealing with their ministers of foreign affairs and trade from Trinidad, Tobago, and you know all these other countries uh, throughout the Caribbean and South uh, and Central America. So uh, to make a long story short, I instead of just focusing on Cuba, I was frankly very easily able to pivot from just Cuba to all of Latin America and the Caribbean, where now I'm speaking in at conferences in Panama, uh, Bogota, Colombia, um, and, and other parts of, uh, of the world. I think what's a common theme through your story is the ability to pivot. And I think sometimes we can get so caught up on one vision that we have for the way that things are supposed to go. And I know I'm almost belaboring the point, but I think it's important for people to get it, right? That when, when things do turn and you're having that God, why have you forsaken me moment? <laughs> uh, for those who are spiritual, um, there's always a way and, and, and everything, and this is something we reiterate on the show a lot, everything that happens in our lives are just, is just nudging us into purpose and into the path that we are supposed to be on. And, but what often differentiates those from reach the, who reach the destination from those who, do, who don't are the people who are, have the ability to be flexible and see, okay, what other opportunity is there that can be born out of what didn't quite work out. And it seems as though you've done that incredibly well throughout your, your professional journey and, and from your academic journey into your professional journey. Yeah, the, 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 what's funny is um, um, I would not have, I don't think I would have been focused on broadening that scope, but for that incident, right? Mm-hmm. I probably would have been just focused on Cuba and would have been a happy camper with, with that alone, right? I, I'd have been the, the go-to guy for Cuba stuff. Right. Uh, but now... Um, not only am I helping U.S.-based companies that want to business in Latin America and the Caribbean, but now I'm also working with companies in other countries that want to do business in the United States. So, for example, I'm talking to a, uh, a company that started off as a mom-and-pop shop in Brazil uh, that's been around now for four decades that is one of the largest producers of fertilizers uh, in all of Brazil. And they're looking to uh, uh, essentially expand globally and want to make Houston their international hub. And so I'm working with them on um, getting them set up in the United States and having their operations in place in order for them to uh, operate globally from Houston, Texas. That's awesome. So thinking about the state of the world right now, you know, we're in uh, this pandemic. The economic downturn is here. Uh, and is going to get worse before it gets better, I'm sure. Um, but people, even those whose jobs feel secure, are battening down the hatches. Corporations are cutting spend where they, where they can in anticipation for how uh, bad this can actually get. So for someone like you, who is in the investment space, is doing the, 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 the fund and capital raises, and also being a conduit for corporations to seek new opportunities, what's your outlook for the next one to two years? This is, um, so this pandemic is now a macro of what we typically experience in the micro, right? Mm-hmm. The same thing happens, right? Some people are going to shut down and they're just going to say, you know what, this is my circumstance and I'm just going to deal with it. Just think about restaurants in any city that you may be in. You have some restaurants that once the pandemic hit, they said, okay, I'm going to shut down. That's it. World is over. Some restaurants are saying, you know what, we're going to modify the way we're operating. We're going to do 
Uh, we're going to do home deliveries. We're going to send notes and say, hey, no, Mother's Day is coming up. Make sure that you, you know we can prepare a meal and deliver it for you or come pick it up. I mean, people are dealing, different people deal with circumstances different ways. And the ones who are nimble, able to pivot, are the ones who are going to do uh, well. So the pandemic doesn't change that dynamic. Uh, so the outlook is going to be dependent upon your perspective. I mean, I, my business has uh, certainly been negatively impacted by uh, this deal. I've, I've had clients who completely pulled out, right? Because, you know, they had self-preservation mode. I get it, understand it, um, but life goes on. Uh, there are other clients who are realizing, that, you know what, this is an opportunity to really press on the gas because as other people are running away, that gives our presence, um, um, our presence now has more impact because we have less people in the mix. So to me, it's a matter of perspective. Absolutely. And specifically, when we're talking about the Urban Capital Network, what's your five-year vision uh, for that initiative? Yeah, yeah. So What's interesting is with Urban Capital Network, we are literally, so we did a, we did a, a first raise, we raised $1.4 million uh, to put money into, into Mercury Funds uh, uh, Fund 4. And we learned about uh, some other companies that we, real, we realized it would be smart for us to try to invest and raise money in this, uh, despite the circumstances. And we actually uh, have exceeded the amount of money that we want to, to raise. So we're literally putting people on wait lists or seeing, wow. yeah, seeing we can invest even more money to invest in some of these companies. And coincidentally, all of these companies are companies that are actually going to do even better because of COVID. Mm. Because these are all companies where it um, uh, eliminates uh, human-to-human contact. So just one example, um, there's one company called Televet. And it, it is, as the name indicates, it's telemedicine for veterinarians, right? So people want to make sure that their pets are fine, right? And they're getting the treatment that they need. But is it worth going to travel to the veterinarian when I got to interact with so many people along the way? Well, my veterinarian might not even be available because the state or city that I'm in says that, that opportunity, you, know, you have to shut down those businesses. Well, in this instance, People who have pets can get their uh, uh, pets the care that they need through telemedicine or through through technology, right? And so uh, this one company started off with uh, currently has a couple hundred uh, networks in their system, and they're about to partner with a large um, company that we all know about, which is going to take their customer base from just a couple hundred to three thousand. I mean, that's the trajectory we're talking about. So people are like trying to figure out how can they get in. And that's the difference of the kind of deals that uh, we end up having access to because of the relationship we have with these venture capital firms. Uh, to more specifically answer your question about where I see um, Urban Capital Network going uh, in the next three to five years, what we're envisioning is having uh, a membership of 10,000 people who are investors in our network. Um, we are envisioning a scenario where uh, we are helping those 10,000 uh, investors increase their uh, uh, their net worth. 
and their, and their wealth in, and, and their wealth in general. But in addition to that, we want to also make sure that we have a very healthy diversity fund with an IQ, where mm-hmm. we are in a position to really uh, give uh, the kind of funding that entrepreneurs need, particularly in urban centers, to uh, catapult their businesses. So in 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 in, in five years, if we have 10,000 investors in our network and we're helping them get healthy returns on their investments and uh, we have uh, a very healthy uh, diversity fund where it's a combination of money that we're contributing from uh, our uh, revenues, but also corporate partners, foundations and other organizations that want to give to this diversity fund that will then uh, uh, allocate funds to invest in businesses in urban centers across the country, uh, I think that'll be success. Uh, that'll be a, a success story for us, and that's how we will be making uh, a dent in uh, the current situation we have. Absolutely, and I think, and not to to minimize the gravity of what's happening in terms of a, the global health crisis that is affecting us economically, but I believe in these difficult times innovation and new lines of business are born out of that. And it's it's my hope and my prayer that some of our people uh, can partake in that as well and, and find a way to blaze new trails and profit from that out of what is a really difficult time. Because some of some folks will come out of this better uh, than they, they were when it started. And unfortunately, we don't always get to see uh, that benefit in, in these instances, because as you mentioned at the beginning, so much of what happens and who's impacted, it disproportionately affects us and the communities that, that we are in. So I commend the work that you're doing. I feel like we need to talk offline. There are some other conversations that we need to have. Um, for sure, but I have no doubt in my mind that you're going to get to that 10,000 number that, that you're talking about. And I know you mentioned the wait list and everything else, but for those who want more information about Urban Capital Network or and or IQ, where can they find that? Yeah, uh, the simplest way is to simply go to urbancapitalnetwork.com, uh, mm-hmm. sign up as a member, and you'll start getting information on um, the different deals that we uh, have access to. And it's also, uh, we'll be also providing quite a bit of education. A lot of people don't know uh, what some of this terminology is that we may use from time to time uh, in the venture capital world, like exits and IRR and, uh, you know, scaling, uh, other terminology that's very com- that we're very comfortable with because we hear it all the time. But you know, some people don't know what what an angel investor is. Why why are we calling it an angel, right? It, right. There's a reason for that, but we're so accustomed to using some of those terminologies uh, that we assume that everybody else understands what that is. So uh, we have an educational series that give people literally one on one training on angel investing, and this this is this includes people who are um, uh, uh, who are very savvy and then uh, and professionals and people who are not professionals because you have plenty of people who are not professionals, but do a whole lot better than professionals do. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't share one other thing. One of the other things that we're really working on right now, we're we're in beta phase uh, for this, but uh, when president Obama was in place uh, at the helm, uh, he made a significant change to the jobs act uh, and, and, and uh, JOBS actually stands, stands for Jump Start Our Businesses or something to that effect. It's an acronym for that. And uh, what it allows is essentially crowdfunding for businesses. So mm-hmm. before that, um, the only people who were able to 
invest in businesses through an online platform were accredited investors. Okay, people who made a certain amount of money or had a certain certain network. Through the Jobs Act, uh, it's allowing crowdfunding with a crowdfunding platforms, and it's just really just a, a website where you can buy stock in a company. A company will a website may have a dozen companies listed. You can click on an icon, and the icon will say, "This company does this. We're trying to raise this much money. This is what we're going to do with the money. If you believe in what we're doing, invest." $2,500, that's the minimum investment or $1,000, whatever it may be. What it essentially does is it democratizes the investment universe. It allows smaller, smaller investments into companies. And so we are working on a crowdfunding platform uh, that will uh, allow not only our investors, but people uh, really anywhere to uh, invest into various businesses, and it will provide a platform where businesses can showcase their uh, company and allow anyone to invest in it that meets uh, some uh, uh, minimum requirements. That's great. And if people want to get in contact with you directly, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, but, so it's probably uh, two ways. Uh, uh, you could just email me at uh, email me at felix at urbancapitalnetwork.com. That's again, Felix at urbancapitalnetwork.com, or they could just call the office at 713-893-0500. Again, 713-893-0500. But the best way to contact me is through email. Awesome. Now, I know we've been using all these business business and corporate and finance terms, but how I would describe you is, is often how I describe Gordon, and that is you are the plug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've kept it very corporate and professional, but I would say you're the plug for sure, Felix, in, in a lot of ways. Well, it's 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 really just a a, a result of uh, having some really good relationships um, that I've been very blessed to have throughout the years. I've been very fortunate to meet some really good people, uh, like my partners at Urban Capital Network. Uh, one of the guys who's in our group, who's actually from New York as well. He's actually from Mount Vernon. He's a medical doctor. Um, and he's part of all the ventures that I'm a part of. So we work very collaboratively on uh, uh, different projects. Uh, Heath Butler and, and Lenny Cezanne, who are the other two partners at Urban Capital Network. Those two guys are, you know, practically grew up together in New Orleans. Uh, Keith and I were the points of contact. We've known each other for a decade. And it's that's just a perfect example of, you know, some brothers who were friends, got together, talked about, hey, we have these ideas where we're going to create we all want to create investment groups, right? Um, Keith Lenny already had one. Eric Tate, the physician, already has an investor group. He, his his network is uh, uh, essentially physicians from across the country who invest in his, his uh, projects, right? Uh, he's also my partner in Six and Stogies, the group I told you about earlier. And so instead of creating three different groups, we basically created one. And I will tell you that I know without a shadow of a doubt that um, we've done what has taken us nine months to do. We're already on our second fund, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what has taken us nine months to do would have probably taken uh, us three years to do, if not longer, if we had not collaborated. 
Absolutely. Well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I meant what I said and that I want to continue it sure. offline for sure. I think there's some synergy here in terms of interests and the things that I'm looking to do. So I look forward to that that conversation. But thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did. I did. It's always good to have these kind of conversations where we can talk about advancing ourselves, uh, not only individually, but collectively as well. For sure. And to our listeners, um, many of us are stuck at home right now. To our First, to our frontline workers and essential workers, we tip our hats to you. Thank you for, for endangering and risking your own lives for the safety and the health of the rest of us and meeting our needs. But if you are home and you have time and you're saying, I don't understand a lot of these terms, I don't know what they're talking about, this is the time to get educated. Uh, use your time wisely. So check out the Urban Capital Network. Or if you're at a place where you have the knowledge, but you're looking for a place to invest, Sounds like there's a line and there's a list. However, please feel free to go and inquire about the great work that Felix and his partners are doing. And remember to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you heard something that you enjoy, tell somebody about it. We don't have a show without you, our listeners. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 